Thanks for listening to Boston University School of Medicine's Safer and Competent Opioid Prescribing Education, Scope of Pain podcast series. I'm Jessica Alpert, and this is episode six, the final in this series. If at any point you want more information on receiving credit for this course, visit our website, scopeofpain.org. There are also resources that accompany this series. All of it can be found at scopeofpain.org. We're going to hear about a new case today. Here to help is Dr. Daniel Alford. He is a professor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine, as well as the director of the Clinical Addiction Research and Education Unit at Boston Medical Center, and a general internist practicing primary care and addiction medicine at Boston Medical Center. Welcome back, Dr. Alford. Well, thank you. Sometimes, despite all that clinicians do to keep their patients safe from the adverse effects of opioids, things can go wrong. Problems can sometimes start with a single worrisome behavior. In this scenario, we have a patient who seemed to be doing quite well. Emily's pain was relatively well controlled, and she functioned well enough to be employed. She was adherent with both her treatment and the monitoring. And her urine drug test consistently returned expected results, except once, when the UDT was opiate positive but negative for oxycodone, raising concerns for opioid misuse and possible diversion. Here's Emily speaking with her doctor about those results. I don't understand. I take my pills exactly like you tell me to. Emily, it's possible that the test is wrong. I wasn't able to check it because the sample was too small. But I'm worried. You keep forgetting to bring your pills in, even though we had long talks about it. I have a lot going on right now. I'm taking care of both of my parents, and my mom has dementia. Nobody's helping me. I'm doing everything by myself. I completely understand. You have lots of stresses in your life. Please, remember, I'm checking your urine and pills to make sure you're taking your medications safely. These medications can be very dangerous, and I want to be sure you're keeping them away from others. Well, I would never take extra pills, even if my pain was really bad. And I would never give my pills to anyone. I need them for my pain. Okay. But because you keep forgetting to bring your pills in, and now that this urine test puts you at high risk for harm, I need to monitor you more closely, including seeing you more often. In the following two months, there were no additional unexpected test results. Dr. Alford, when something like this happens, how do you talk to patients who you suspect may be diverting some of their opioid pain medications? So in a case like this, I think it's really important to zero in on the behaviors that make you worried if the urine is negative for the medication you're prescribing. And by focusing on the behaviors, you decrease the risk of the patient feeling stigmatized or judged. And it's really important for you to explain to the patient that if there are behaviors that are concerning for diversion, that will certainly threaten your ability to be able to continue to prescribe this medication in the future. Emily's case is far from over. In this next scene, her husband is speaking with the emergency room attending physician, Dr. Lambert. Mr. Thompson, can you walk me through the chain of events? I need to know exactly what happened. Uh, All right. It was about two in the morning and I heard this big boom in the bathroom and I went in there and Emily was on the floor. 
Now, was she responsive? No, she wasn't moving, but I found her naloxone, so I gave that to her. The nasal spray, right? Yeah, and she opened her eyes right away, um, and then I called 911. Well, I have some good news. She's stable now, but I really want to figure out how we can prevent this from happening again. Has Emily seemed more stressed lately or maybe in more pain? She's definitely in more pain. She's taking more of the oxycodone to deal with it. I also found out she was taking some of my dad's morphine that he had left after back surgery. How has this all affected her daily life? Well, I mean, she's she's barely going to work. She calls in sick all the time. Um, I'm afraid she's going to get laid off. I should have seen this coming. I know she was sleeping all the time. She's just not being herself. But I'm just busy with the kids, and, you know, I have to take care of my own job, so... Mr. Thompson, please just don't blame yourself. We just need to get to a place where Emily can live without being in pain. I mean, look, I had no idea she was addicted to her pain medication. Like, how does this even happen? I just need help. I just need to make sure that she's going to be okay. I know this is a lot to take in. Well, then get me some help. I don't want to take her home until we have a plan. Dr. Alford, please stand by. I want to add another voice to the conversation, Dr. Mark LaRochelle. You may recognize him from our very first episode. Dr. LaRochelle, welcome back. Thanks again for having me. Dr. Mark LaRochelle is a general internist and health services researcher who specializes in primary care and addiction medicine at Boston Medical Center. He's also an assistant professor at the Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. LaRochelle, you've actually studied this. What do we know about what happens in the emergency department? Yeah, unfortunately, we've identified very substantial gaps in treatment and management after an overdose. In one study, we looked at nearly 3,000 individuals who were being prescribed opioids for chronic pain who experienced an overdose and were seen in the emergency department. We found that a staggering 91% left the emergency department, returned to a physician, and received another prescription for opioids. How, how is that possible, 91%? Yeah, it seems um, unthinkable. One of the potential explanations is that we have such a fragmented healthcare system that the provider who was actually dispensing those opioids did not know that the overdose had actually occurred, and that patient may not have volunteered that the overdose had occurred. Another reason could be that the patient continues to have severe chronic pain and reports that the opioids are the only things that are helping manage that pain. And the provider thinks that it's worth trying again despite the known risk. And then what percentage of those people go on to have another overdose? Yeah, so unfortunately the rate of repeat overdose is really high. In this cohort, 7% went on to have another overdose after the first, and those that had continued at high-dosage opioid prescribing, that number increased to 17%, about one in six. In another study, we examined over 17,000 patients who had survived an overdose in Massachusetts and either had an ambulance encounter or had visited the emergency department. And this time we were interested in seeing how many went on to receive treatment for opioid use disorder, and in particular whether or not they received a medication for opioid use disorder. And we found that only 3 out of 10 received a medication for opioid use disorder in the year following overdose, which is a tremendous missed opportunity. And importantly, we found that those that did receive medication 
with methadone or buprenorphine had a 50% reduction in all-cause and opioid-related mortality. Dr. LaRochelle, let's stick with opioid use disorder. Can you give us an overview? We know that opioid use disorder is a chronic relapsing brain disorder. It's characterized by compulsive drug use despite negative consequences. It involves changes to the brain and reward pathway that involves stress and self-control. And we know that these changes in the brain persist even after stopping drug use. Like other chronic diseases, opioid use disorder involves cycles of relapse and remission. And without treatment, it is a progressive illness and can result in disability or premature death. Dr. Mark LaRochelle, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Dr. Alford, I want to turn back to you. We were just talking about medications for opioid use disorder. What else can you add? We're lucky in that we actually have three medications that are available to us to treat opioid use disorder. And first, let me just say that the reason why we use medications are the following. To alleviate physical withdrawal. So when people stop using their opioids, we don't want them to get sick. It also alleviates the drug craving, so they don't have this urge to continue to use. But if they do use and relapse, these medications should also block the effects of that opioid so they don't get the reward. And also, when people are on these medications over time, their brain starts to normalize. So we start to see normalization of those changes. And the three options that we have include methadone, which is a full opioid agonist, buprenorphine, which is a partial opioid agonist, and naltrexone, which is a full opioid antagonist. And in terms of patient outcomes, these medications decrease mortality. But they can't all be used in a primary care setting, right? Correct. So methadone is only allowed to be dispensed in a licensed, regulated opioid treatment program. So it decreases its availability. Buprenorphine can be prescribed in an office-based setting, but the person prescribing it needs to be qualified. You need to take a special training. It's an eight-hour training. And then naltrexone can be prescribed by anyone. You don't need special training, and you don't need to be in a licensed program. Got it. So um, it sounds like there, there are a lot of effective treatments available, but there's still an access issue. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a limited supply of opioid treatment programs. Some states only have one, so there's decreased access to, to methadone. And uh, a limited number of providers or clinicians have taken the step to become qualified to prescribe buprenorphine. In fact, it's only about 6% of all of the primary care clinicians in this country. So it's really limited. Now, Trexone is also complex in some ways. It's an injectable. It requires a collaboration with a pharmacy and the medication to be sent to primary care. So it's a little complex. It's a little bit different than what we normally do in primary care. So yeah, I think there's absolutely access problems. And unfortunately, not everyone with an opioid use disorder who wants one of these medications has ready access to it. What are the benefits of this treatment? Probably the premier benefit is that there is a mortality benefit. That is a decrease in overall mortality and also an opioid-related mortality. But also we see other benefits, improved employment, retention and treatment, decreased infection with hepatitis C and HIV. So where can people learn more about treatment availability or licensing programs? So I'd recommend being familiar with the federal 
website, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. They have a treatment locator, which covers the entire country. But locally, I would say that your Department of Public Health, your State Department of Public Health, should have resources listed for you to access, but also for your patients to access. And just a reminder, we'll have all of those listed again at scopeofpain.org. So if someone has opioid use disorder and pain, what do you recommend? Yeah, so this is one of the more complex patient treatment problems. However, we're lucky because buprenorphine can treat both pain and the opioid use disorder, or OUD. Well, buprenorphine, its analgesic properties last about six to eight hours, and its treatment of addiction lasts 24 hours. So if you dose it every six to eight hours, you can actually treat their pain, and over the 24-hour period, they're going to get enough buprenorphine to treat their addiction. So you can do those simultaneously. But again, in order to treat their opioid addiction, you need to be specially trained or wavered to do that. So I would encourage people to get wavered to prescribe buprenorphine for the treatment of OUD. And when someone has concurrent chronic pain, instead of dosing it once a day, you dose it three times a day to treat both. Where can people learn more about training? So I would encourage people, again, to go to the SAMHSA, or Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, website. And once you get to that website, there is a tab for buprenorphine training. Okay, so let's move on to acute pain and people who are on these medications. Yeah, so this is also a common question that I get asked. So you've got somebody who's on buprenorphine, let's say, and they have surgery. How do we manage their acute pain? Well, the most important thing to remember is that this person has been living a normal life on a certain dose of buprenorphine, and they need to stay on that dose of buprenorphine or some equivalence before you're going to be able to treat their pain. So the easiest thing to do is just continue their buprenorphine during the acute pain episode and then treat their acute pain with analgesics on top of that. Um, The same thing with someone who's on methadone. You would continue their methadone dose or some equivalent dose of an opioid so they don't go through withdrawal, and then you treat their acute pain on top of it like you would treat anyone else's acute pain. The challenge is when someone's on naltrexone because it's an antagonist, treating their acute pain with an opioid isn't going to work. So in those cases, you need to either use a non-opioid or ask your anesthesia colleagues to come in and and do a nerve block or some other procedural treatment of acute pain. But you're not going to be able to use an opioid in someone who's on naltrexone. Let's go back to our patient, Emily. What ideally should happen to someone like her in the emergency department? Ideally for a patient like Emily who has chronic pain, and now an opioid use disorder, is to treat both. And you could do that with buprenorphine. And I would ask that the emergency department start the buprenorphine so that there's no gap in treatment, and that the primary care provider dose it as a a three-time-a-day medication to treat both her pain and to treat her addiction, her opioid use disorder. And, And again, hopefully there's no gap in treatment between what happens at the time of discharge from the emergency room to the time that she sees her primary care provider. So as we conclude this sixth episode series, can you summarize what we've learned about opioids? Firstly, opioids should never be the first treatment choice, that they're only one tool when we're using a multimodal approach, that side effects are common, but they can be managed. 
But we need to remember that there's potentially serious risk, both addiction and overdose and death. However, we can assess for misuse risk. So we don't need to assume that every patient has the same risk. We can risk stratify people and monitor them based on their individual risk. And what did we learn about monitoring or universal precautions? So I think it's important to apply universal precautions, that is assume every patient has at least some risk, but individualize your treatment based on that patient's individual risk. And that we should continue or modify or even taper opioids based on our observations of that benefit and risk. We should optimize our office system so it's not all left on the person doing the prescribing. We should involve the entire healthcare team. And we should carefully document the rationale for continuing opioids or discontinuing opioids based on that benefit and risk assessment. So if you followed all of these steps and there is still worrisome behavior, then what? Well, first we need to remember that worrisome behaviors can signify either pain relief seeking or substance seeking behaviors or a combination of both. And it's really important for us to fully assess it and then respond to what we think is going on. And ultimately, our decisions to continue or discontinue opioids should be really based on that reassessment of the risks and benefits of the treatment and make sure we're documenting it well. And finally, if you think someone has an opioid use disorder, it's really important to get them into care. And really, the standard of care are the use of medications, whether it be methadone, buprenorphine, or naltrexone. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Daniel Alford, a practicing internist as well as a professor of medicine at the Boston University School of Medicine and director of the Clinical Addiction Research and Education Unit at Boston Medical Center. Thank you for listening to the Scope of Pain podcast series. Please complete the post-test and an evaluation, and you'll be able to download your certificate. Scope of Pain was developed in collaboration with our national partners, the Council of Medical Specialty Societies, and the Federation of State Medical Boards. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from the Opioid Analgesic Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, or REMS, program companies. Special thanks to our expert guests, Dr. Mark LaRochelle, nurse practitioner Kristen Wason, Dr. Alexander Wally, Dr. Joanna DeFleety, and Dr. Jessica Taylor. The course director for Scope of Pain is Dr. Daniel Alford. Production by Rococo Punch. To follow up on any of the material you heard today, visit our website, scopeofpain.org, for visuals and other relevant materials. And while you're there, please take your post-test. I'm Jessica Alpert. Thanks for listening.